Welcome to the Northeast Audio Guided Walking Tour. These tours were created by a team of Northeast collaborators in cooperation with neighbors to bring you this snapshot of Northeast 2009 in reflection and consideration of the past, present, and the future. You are listening to the Never the Same River Twice Tour designed by Jennifer Arvey, Kirsten Rome, Marquise Wise, Alan Kendall, Andy Dayton, and Glenn Smith. Stand facing the river. The river is probably the one thing that wouldn't have changed by the time you take this tour. Right now, there might be bridge construction to your right. Hopefully, a little brick building, a bar, just behind you to your right is still there. We'll talk about that bar later in the tour. Change is a constant. Even the things that have survived the river of change are never seen the same way again. Perceptions change. What we see around us are the results of many exchanges between circumstance, desire, actions of the people, government, and industries, their mistakes and successes. These are forces that created the change in the Pierre Bottineau neighborhood in the past and will form it in the future. Right now, you are standing on the east side of Edgewater Park. In front of you, there should be a sign by the park board describing the history of land usage in this area. Let's walk as I sing for you. Turn to your left and follow the blue path and walk with the music. I'd hate for you to get too far ahead. If you do, just listen and wait for the tour to catch up before moving on. If this were 1960, you would be walking by a brand new supper club, the Edgewater Inn. My name is Sharon Morris, and I was part of the Edgewater Eight, a singing group that performed at the Edgewater Inn. I remember running through the kitchen, which was located between our dressing room and the stage, dodging cooks and waiters. We could hear the stage band playing our sound cues, and it was time for us to go on. By the late 1970s, the Edgewater had changed hands several times before it finally closed in 1989, and soon after that was torn down. Many of the older neighbors remember how you could park your boat at the Riverside Dock, come up to the inn, have dinner, and see a show. The Edgewater Inn was a very popular place. Stay to the path on your right. You are walking on the old red ox cart trail. It ran between St. Paul and the fur trading posts in the Red River Valley from 1820 to 1870. In 1842, this land was purchased by Pierre Bottineau, the namesake of the Pierre Bottineau neighborhood. And in 1846, he consolidated these claims into a 320-acre tract. People say he sold or gave away a lot of this land to families who settled here and built some of the very houses you see around you. 
Families like the Glucks, the Kemps, and the Tices, to name a few. Pierre Botna was born in a hunting camp in Grand Forks to a French-Canadian father and an Ojibwa Sioux mother. Because of his mixed race, white settlers did not always accept Botano, but he came to be a trusted liaison between the Native Americans and the settlers in this area. He was celebrated and nicknamed the Walking Peace Pipe. You know, my daughter is one of the creators of this walking tour. She lives in Northeast with her husband and my grandchildren. Oh, it's my cell phone. Excuse me. Hello? Hi, Mom. Stop when you get to the end of the brick path, where it meets the sidewalk. Oh, hi, Kirsten. It's my daughter. Mom, tell them about the cow in the park. Oh, I'd love to, sweetie. But we're in Edgewater Park. Someone will tell them about the cow in another park. Wait for the wagon, wait for the wagon, wait for the wagon, and we'll all take a ride. Take a right and proceed to the chain link, link fence, fence surrounding around. the empty lot next to the park, then stop. My name is Jackie Fuller. I live in Northeast and I'm a DJ on a local public radio station. And you're listening to the sounds of the Harders. Philip, Isabel, and Otto Harder are neighbors that live just down the street. River life still exists here, though it's very different from the days when Native Americans lived along the banks during the fur trade or the turn of the century industrial development. Today, river and boat culture is an exciting and controversial part of life here on this stretch of Marshall Avenue. Look at this empty lot. What is an empty lot? Nothing? A clue to the politics of the neighborhood? It's a story long-standing neighbors can tell. Here is Randy with his version of the story. Many Gasco owned it. And... Uh, Park Board was trying to get it, and they wouldn't part with it. Well, then a few years later, they're going to part with it, and they sold it. And nobody knew they sold it. So I talked to this L Singer from Minigasco, and he says, yeah, we sold it. I said, well, why wouldn't you sell it to the Park Board? Because it was like $5,000. So he couldn't do anything on it because there's a gas line going underneath. So put all these docks because... NSP kicked all the uh, houseboats out on St. Paul because they were illegally there using their power and all that. So they all came here. So Zev had them down there until everybody complained about that and then that got them out of here. Keep walking down Marshall. Some of the people keeping contemporary boat culture alive are Phil and Isabel Harder. So Miss Rockaway Armada is a collective of artists that were going to build a gigantic art boat. We discovered they were going to build this boat somewhere in Minneapolis. And being that we live on the river, I knew there wasn't a lot of places you could build a boat that was going to be 80, 100 feet long. 
And so I asked them where they're going to do it. They said, we'll just go to a park somewhere and build with like 40 people. And I knew they were going to probably get kicked out, especially if they're kind of punk rock, hippie type. I offered our property, not knowing the size of the boat at the time, and I also talked my neighbors that live right next to us into laying out about 200, 300 feet of, of river shore for them to build. Pulled up about a week later with about 40 people and started building. We had a massive tent city in our backyard. Very few people knew how to build anything. They were all learning as they went. They anticipated it would take about, what did they say, three days at first? Mm -hmm. And they ended up staying? Three weeks. But it was a great experience. It was a wild crew. They were very polite and very open, and it was an adventure of their lifetime. And I think somewhere in a storm in Lake Pepin, the boats were smashing up on top of each other, and the lashings were breaking, and they had to cut stuff loose just to save the rest of the boat. Stored their boat at a farmer's land for the winter, and then a bunch of the people came back the following spring. And they made it all the way to St. Louis. This stretch of river has been attracting businesses, industry, and homeowners for a long time. Did you know these homes you're passing as you walk are the only single-family Mississippi Riverfront properties in Minneapolis? Isabel and Philip talk about what drew them to this riverfront home. We were at the, science, the old science museum in St. Paul, back then my sister, and um, we were looking at this aerial picture. We're already, already living northeast Minneapolis, and we're kind of looking up our neighborhood, and then, oh, there's the river. And then we're going down the river, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, my God, there's a whole row of houses right there on the Mississippi. So the next day, we got in our, on our bikes, I think, and we just rode, drove by these houses, and I'm um, like, oh, wow, this is really cool. So what we did then, we went to the property tax office and found out which house was homesteaded and which house was um, non-homesteaded, and we wrote everybody who had a non-homesteaded home a letter to see if they were interested in selling to us. Talked with different people, and then finally the house that we bought first of Mary Lee Hardenberg, she was willing to um, sell the house to us. And we bought that house in 98. So we lived there until 2007. And then all of a sudden, our old neighbors, Annie and Helen, announced that they were going into a nursing home and their house has come up for sale. So we, we ended up buying the house of our really good neighbors, Annie and Helen. And with that house came a lot of history because their family has been living in this house since 1923. Stop at the little restaurant just before the park. If you'd like to go in and have some food before going on, just press pause after I tell you a little bit about this place. The sample room is owned by James Rosenberg. Before it was the sample room, it was the Polish Palace. The building was built in 1893 by Matthew Tice and was likely built for the Glick Brewery. Imagine the workers at Glick's Brewery filling into this bar to enjoy a cold one after work. There was once a tunnel that ran underground to the bar. Most likely, it connected to the brewery or maybe the Glick Mansion. Both buildings were once located next door in what is now Glick Park. Maybe the tunnel is a remnant of a rumored speakeasy. 
Password. Warren G. Harding drinks like a fish. Walk to the park next door. If you can, just march right up the hill and enter the park through the corner. Or you may use the formal park entrance further down the block. This is Glick Park. Walk to the Overlook as Randy tells you the story of the Glick Mansion and the development of this park. You'll be able to see some of the once abandoned and now reclaimed houseboats from the old marina up the street. Mostly the old timers. It was mostly Eddie Carbo. Actually, Diane Hofstede was on the committee. Uh, Patty Hillemeyer. Ken Frankie, a bunch of old timers, and they're the ones that were persistent when Art Glick at the time to get him to donate the park to uh, the park board. So they were, and so as they did that, they fostered the park all along. All I remember is when I had my place, uh, there was a mansion there. They used to walk by all the time. And uh, next mo one morning, I'm walking by and it's gone completely leveled. This was a beautiful brick mansion that today they would never take that down. So that was really sad that that that, that they tore that down. But then that's how you know Glicks Park got to be named. The only thing I was really instrumental in is getting it called Glicks Riverside Park. Because it was called Glicks Park before that. And I thought because it's on the river it should have the riverside with it. And then um, we find out that it's got an asbestos problem. So I'm talking to uh, Sonia Vega from the EPA, finding out a little bit more about it because the park board's pretty quiet about it. They're, they're not making a big thing out of it. And uh, they have to dig everything and take every tree out of there and all that and completely start from scratch. Well, I thought, nah, that's no way. So I got a hold of the tree trust, the DNR and all that to try to find out if there was another way that you can clean around trees and save them, especially the real big ones, and there was. So I had a big meeting at the park board building, the new park board building. I had the DNR, National Park Service, tree specialists. I invited everybody from the park board and they shunned it. The only one that showed up was Walt Dietzik. I had the health department there, the EPA, everybody there to talk about this park. So I thought, well, if the only way to do it is get everybody at the table. And everybody talked about how that could be done to save the trees. And a good thing that Sonia was listening to us from the EPA, because she could do whatever she wanted to do because she was going to clean it. And Parkport said, oh, there's no way you can do that. It costs a lot more money. Well, it didn't. It ranged. Actually, it cost less money. And they saved most of the trees by cleaning them. Start walking on the path to the gazebo. This looks like any other gazebo, but it too has a story. They took the gazebo out, and they didn't need to do that because it was on a cement platform. And all they have to do is clean around it because cement, it's never going to come up. 
but all of a sudden they took the gazebo. They had somebody there and they took it apart. And I go, what, what? So I called the park board. They, of course, don't want to say nothing. And uh, it's over South Minneapolis. So that's where they put the gazebo. So they're telling me that, well, we could it was in bad shape and we had it. And, and by the move, it's bad shape and all. I went and looked at it. There's nothing wrong with it. So then they said, well, we'll get you a new gazebo. Well, the Glicks family donated. See, every time anybody died in the Glicks family, they would donate some money to the park. And one of the things was the gazebo. The other thing was the outlook. And they paid for trees and they did different things. And I thought it was a kick in the butt to the Glicks family to take a gazebo that they put down that they didn't need to take out of there. Change is often political and comes with its disappointments. But with neighborhood stewardship, collaboration, and sometimes resistance, communities can evoke the changes they want to see. Please walk to the city sidewalk, remove your headsets, and press pause to cross the street. Someone will meet you on the other side. If you get lost on the recording, you can restart the recording at the chapter entitled the other side of Marshall. should now be standing across the street from Glick Park. Walk up the street toward where we began until you reach 22nd. My name is Rich Fenton. In 1996, I worked as a caretaker for the estate of Dorothy and Ruth. Lived in the yellow house across the street next to the sample room. They were the children of the Tice family. Their father built what is now the sample room and owned several properties in this area, including the house where I lived, 2133 Marshall, on the corner of 22nd Avenue. I later bought this home in the attached property, 2135 Marshall, with my wife Marion. My father, Larry Fenton, bought the house behind us on 22nd Avenue. It is believed that my house was once the office for the slaughterhouse and the adjoining cattle fields. The one-story building across the street at 2204 was a butcher shop owned by Frederick Walksmith, husband of Augusta Camp. The Camps also built many homes in this neighborhood, and it is said were good friends with the Glicks. To this day, there are artifacts from these times still around. Inside the old butcher shop remains the original smoker, and I have found buried cattle bones while working in my backyard. I bought this house in 1997 because this neighborhood was a great mix of the older Northeast generations and the new generations of artists moving in, and the new life that came with them, studios and restaurants. 
Take a right and walk down 22nd Avenue. Hi, this is Andy. I'll be guiding you through the next part of the tour. For now, just keep walking straight down 22nd Avenue. Started in Eden, where it all begun. Our kin folk met Satan, and an apple, my son. You're listening to John Knowles and Jonathan Olson. They're on the back of a houseboat docked on the Mississippi. The houseboat is a project by David Salmola and Creative Electric Studios. They converted the boat's cabin into an art installation and put it on the river for Artaworld 2009. Artaworld is an annual open studio and gallery tour, and it's one of Northeast Minneapolis's most well-known events. It was founded in 1996 by Dave Felker and a group of Northeast Minneapolis artists. 2009 was Artaworld's 13th year, and over 400 artists in Northeast Minneapolis opened their studios to about 35,000 visitors for a single weekend in May. Here's artist Aldo Moroni, who was around for the very first Artaworld. Well, Artaworld was started, I mean, even in a studio meeting up at uh, Thorpe Building, and uh, people were sitting around, and the idea was that, okay, well, what would happen if we all open our studios at the same time? So it starts off, it's a real uh, community action, you know, of artists. And the thing about Northeast is that as the artists moved into this area from downtown, we were all across the river downtown. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, recreating and, and refurbishing spaces, then it gets yuppified and the prices go up. And then artists can't afford to be in prices like that, you yeah. know. So everybody came across here, which at the time, this was mainly a Polish-Ukrainian neighborhood. And a lot of these old folks were moving out of their spaces. And then like John Kramer and Jennifer Young who own this building and uh, Casket Arts and then other people who own other big buildings up here renovated these industrial spaces into affordable art studios, you know? I talked to Aldo in front of the California building where he has a studio. You can see that building coming up to your left. As you're listening, keep walking until you reach the power lines, then wait underneath them. Doug Padilla is another artist with a studio in the California building. He had a role in getting Artaroll off the ground in 96, and has been around since to watch it grow. Of course, Artaroll is really a lot bigger. Um, it's really a lot less wild. The parties the first year, two years, three years, were amazing. And the sense of camaraderie was amazing. Now it's like, you know, you almost want to hire somebody to be in your space so you can go out and connect with other people and see what they're doing. And even then, it's so big, you, you can't get much of it done. Mm -hmm. um, it's so successful that just a lot of people completely do their own things. And, you know, and the bars, all the bars have something now. So, uh, you know, people, and you know, that, you know, that's wonderful. Let a, as Mao said, uh, let a thousand flowers blossom. As Doug tells it, the early art world meetings were often heated and disorganized, and coming to any kind of consensus was difficult. There were a lot of different ideas about how things should be done, but one important decision came surprisingly easy. And so we're sitting around going, oh, what are we going to call this thing? And 
we were, you know, coming up with all these ideas, and people were arguing, and, you know, that sounds to this, that sounds to that, and uh, Juris Plessens, local artist and sculptor and carpenter, went to use the bathroom. When he was in the bathroom, urinating, he looked out the window, standing there, looked out the window, and across the street is a company called Whirlflow. And Whirlflow has as its signature sort of a, a whirl, whirlpool. And he looked at it and he went, Art of Whirl. And he came back in and everybody went, Art of Whirl. That's it. Okay, you should be underneath the power lines now. Turn and look to the south, where you should be able to see the Minneapolis skyline. This is one of my favorite views of the city. I think it gives you a good sense of the neighborhood's history. The tall grass in front of you is a reminder of what things may have looked like before the area was settled by Europeans, when it was still wild. Then there are the train tracks, which are still in use today. To me, they represent the legacy of industrialization in northeast Minneapolis, hearkening back to a time when many of its residents worked at a factory not too far from their home. The power lines overhead are a part of what made it possible to move industry elsewhere, when the energy once supplied by the river could now come from a power plant. This migration of industry is what left buildings like the one behind you vacant, until new uses were found for them. For the past few decades, that vacancy has been filled by studios, part of what's now referred to as the Northeast Arts District. But that too will probably change with time. Okay, time to move on. Keep walking and follow the path into Botano Park. When you get to the chain link fence, someone will be there to meet you. Hi, my name is Alan Kendall. You're stepping into what is undoubtedly my favorite park in Northeast Minneapolis, Botano Park. You'll be following the sidewalk to the playground and taking a left in front of the pool. I took the opportunity to meet and interview long-term park commissioner Walt Diedzik during a sculpture dedication at Jackson Square Park to learn more about the roots of Botno Park and this man who was so influential in the park development. Botno Park uh, has a unique history with myself. Uh, I grew up uh, just a few blocks from Botno at Marshall Terrace Park. I've lived in Northeast for uh, 76 years, but Botno, uh, early in my, my uh, uh, career as a park participant, we used to play Botno, and it was bitter rivalry. And then when I got a little older, I played on teams from Botno. In fact, in 1946, we won the Aquatennial Baseball Championship as a junior boy. So it was cool to find out we both share a love for baseball and have great admiration towards Coach Bernie Kunza. I, I, I couldn't talk about Botno Park without talking about Bernie Kunza. Bernie Kunza does the baseball program at Botno, and he does a wonderful job of uh, organizing. And then he has the Northeast Boosters that have been at Botno Park for over 50 years to help finance some of the projects uh, that the park board can't afford. So he has been a, just a delight to work with and have at that park. In fact, I think some of the best baseball 
that's played in the park bridge system throughout the city is played at Botno. Botno doesn't have uh, ice skating in the winter, but then what that does, it makes the grass grow better so the ball diamonds are a little nicer. It takes more than one hardworking person like Walt to build a unique park like Botno. It takes many people committed to making innovative changes to their neighborhood. These changes bring value to the community and give young people who live in the area a better environment in which to grow. The uh, Botno neighborhood, the uh, Botno uh, community council, we all work closely with the park board and actually with the city of Minneapolis on a whole lot of projects. Projects uh, like at Glick Park, Edgewater, uh, the garden community of Marshall uh, Terrace, Botno is in, heavily involved in that. Behind Grainbelt, there's going to be a new park developing, developing in the next few years. I, I, I'm really uh, pleased that Northeast Minneapolis has as many places for youngsters to play as, as anywhere in the city. Sometimes unexpected events open the door for great new changes. Oh, that's my phone, sorry. Hey. Alan. Tell them about the cow in the park. Oh yeah, thanks. Perfect timing. I'm in Bono Park right now. Here's the story. Mike Fahey, a Northeaster who had lived in Northeast his entire life, his mother used to live across the street when she was little. They kept the family cow in this very park. The kids in the family would milk the cow, then go around and sell the milk to the neighbors. Where were we? Oh, oh yeah. Sometimes unexpected events open the door for great new changes. 90... Uh... Botno had a fire. Botno Park uh, building burnt. And it stood there for over a year. I became a park commissioner and I told the uh, fire chief of Minneapolis that, you know, this building is sitting there. We, we can't ever bring it back. Why don't you order it torn out? Well, he checked his, his authority and his authority gave him the power to tear it down and they did that. And then we put up a new building. It's one of the three buildings like it in the country, a dome, a dome building. And uh, that building uh, is there today. It has a track for uh, senior citizens to uh, walk around. It has basketball courts. You can play soccer in there. They have a baseball net in there for batting practice. It's just a, a really functional building. Here's the skate park where I like to spend most of my time when I'm here. It's Bono's latest attraction, built in late 2005. Skateboarding competitions at Botno have brought together more and more people each year from all around the state. Each day, people come just to ride Botno's different transitions. Botno is one of four parks in the Minneapolis system that has a skateboard park. You know, it's funny because when we were building that, one of the old-time um, staff, he said, neighborhood services, Joe Hollowa, said, why are you doing that? There ain't nobody going to want to rollerblade or, or do their... Uh, uh, skateboards. I said, Joe, just wait. And boy, I'll tell you, every day you go by Botno Park, you will see youngsters on their skateboards or on their bikes uh, doing uh, the different uh, tricks that they uh, that they do. Some aren't very good, and I imagine on occasion some will, will take a bruise here and there, but when you go there and you see the accomplished skateboarders, boy, that's really a treat. Stand at the fire hydrant to your right, and Kirsten will meet you there soon. It's Kirsten. I'm back. Did you like the story about the cow? My grandparents milked 80 cows twice a day. I really like the idea of a one-cow dairy. 
This neighborhood used to have a lot more farm animals. I mean, chickens, ducks, pigs, horses until 1947. And they kicked the last donkey off Nicollet Island in about 2000. Stand here for just a minute and look at the old brick building across the street. This used to be the Northeast Neighborhood House. It was built in 1915 as part of the International Settlement House Movement to help new immigrants find housing and work and learn English. Northeast has been a first home for immigrants for almost 150 years, French, German, and Scandinavian, and then Slavic. By 1930, 60% of the population in Northeast were immigrants. Germans, Italians, and Jewish people from all over Europe, many learned English and adapted to the U.S. in over 140 settlement houses like this one. In the 1960s, the Northeast Neighborhood House merged with another settlement house, the Margaret Berry House and the new organization was called East Side Neighborhood Services, which moved into a new building two blocks to your right just a few years ago. The old building hosted a hundred years of immigration stories and a ghost. <laughs> and Ruth Ann, Terry, and Schweib will talk to you while you walk and tell you their stories, including encounters with the ghost. You are headed to 22nd, where you will turn left again. We would stay there till probably 12 o'clock just doing paperwork and you know making sure the files were done and, and the woman that I work with when she worked nights she ran into a couple cases or a couple instances where she saw things and one was in specific was a she came out of her office and she looked to the left and there was a little girl standing at the end of the hallway right at the door and she said can I help you she did. She actually talked to the little girl. And the little girl just turned around and walked through the door. Tell me more. Um, when we cleared out the space up there, there was more than once that I was doing some stuff and stopped. And I heard what sounded like footsteps up there. And you, you look around and there's nothing there. Plus, every once in a while, the lights would go off. And then they would come back on. There were rumors that um, there was a child who drowned in one of the bathtubs there. Alta, who was our, our um, mom on third floor, she took care of us. She did cleaned up the kitchen and made special dishes for us. And she was really a neat person. She had heard about the East Side Ghost. And she said that one evening when she was cleaning up after a party, East Side Ghost came in and wiped off the countertops for her. In the, in the spirit of, of cleanliness, I assume the East Side Ghost would do something that, that nice. My family bought into this neighborhood in 1997 because it felt international. You are more likely now to notice Somalis or Ecuadorians as the newest immigrants in Northeast. My name is Schwab Ibrahim. I work in Eastside Neighborhood Services and I started in 2007. Minnesota is the, one of the biggest Somali population in, in the whole North, North America. 55,000 to 60,000 Somalis are living in Minnesota. Immigrants mostly struggle with the language barrier. That's the most important and most uh, hard for them to find a job when they don't speak the language and they are willing to get a job and they don't and able to get it because the language barrier. And the second one is the cultural shock. When the, the food is different, the, uh, the time is different, 
the place is different, the weather is different. So they have all, all different uh, things to deal with. We don't write a lot in Somali history. And our uh, written language was written in 1972. You have to start zero, you know, education is zero. Doesn't matter if you are educated back home or not, let's go to school, take a test, be a student again. I once joined in an Egyptian Ramadan feast at the corner of Lowry and Central while the Germans belted out beer songs in a tent two blocks away celebrating Fashi. I've got an Italian sausage soup at the Polish Kamarczak's Deli, as well as Lebanese spinach pie, Thai noodles, Afghani pizza, and Mexican cake. I've window shopped fashions from India and Egypt on Central Avenue and bought Baltic amber jewelry on East Hennepin, all in Northeast. Stop by the park entrance and wait for the next narrator. I'll be back one more time to tell you about a neighborhood spot that encourages you to become a beautiful corpse. I'm not kidding. Hi, it's Andy again. Keep walking on the sidewalk, crossing the railroad tracks next cross the street. Be careful, look both ways, and feel free to pause the tour while you're crossing. I'll still be here when you push play again. If you lose your place, just go to the chapter called California Building. Now you're outside the California Building. Walk through this lot towards the back of the building. Once you get there, you should see a garden with a picnic table in it. Then you can have a seat and keep listening. The sounds you're hearing are from Stuart Devon and Savage Oral Hotbed. He's playing a scrap metal sound sculpture he constructed, and the song is called No. The California building has a reputation as a haven for artists and creatives, a reputation that was solidified when Jennifer Young and John Kramer bought the building in 1991. But that's not where the building's history begins. Here's John Kramer with the California building story. Turn of the century, of course, as folks know, Minneapolis was the mill city, and it was the largest grain-producing place in the world. But as soon as electric power came in, of course, the mills started popping up in Buffalo, New York, and all sorts of places. Well, someone tried that here in Minnesota and used this newfangled electric power um, to, to do a grain mill. There were elevators north of here that were also tied to it and connected, and the railroad tracks were right behind the building on the east. So they shipped and processed grain here. That went out of fashion like a lot of the small mills did, as they were brought up by what is general mills. And General Mills takes its name because it bought up all these little companies. This one was U.S. Cereal Company, and they became the big behemoth. In the 30s and into the war, they made stuff for the Russian front, and there were a number of people in the neighborhood who actually worked here, uh, batteries and stuff for the war effort, particularly um, cold weather, snow-related Russian front things, I've been told. After the war, it actually follows the history of the United States, um, it became mobilized for the war effort, and after the war the government helped out and they started making washing machines and dryers for all the new um, domestic families. The building stayed a factory until the 1970s, when a company called Electrolux bought it and eventually moved to St. Cloud. We bought it in 91. It was, it was largely empty, um, but we saw the changes that were happening in the warehouse district, where there had been a thriving art scene in the late 70s and 80s, but with the 
Target Center going in. It was inevitable with the sports bars and what would happen to that neighborhood. So we put out a call and said, let's have, you know, let's do some art stuff here in Northeast. It wasn't quite as easy as just moving in and starting an art community. There were some clashes between the mainly working class immigrant population and the new population of artists. There was, frankly, more than a small amount of resistance um, to the kinds of folks we brought into the neighborhood. Um, people of different colors, people of different attitudes, different dress. Um, you know, I remember being at one neighborhood meeting and literally people complaining that they saw a nude sca- statue you know, going down the sidewalk. And that sounds hilarious now. But these were concerns that there were illicit behaviors going on or, you know, there was nudity or something in this statue or in this painting. And um, so there was a real sort of social class difference. It was new and different, and there was change, and change is hard for people. Mm-hmm. That's one of the main re- reasons I was started Help uh, the Art of World, because then we had to play. All the neighbors came through for the first few years, all the neighbors. What's going on here? And then they saw people. Then they talked to the tenants. They saw talked to the artists. They went, oh, this isn't scary. This isn't that different. I get this. This is kind of neato. You know, this, they appreciate it. Some, and they learn. Well, some I don't like. Some I do like. Well, that's modern art. You know, that's how it is. You don't have to like that all. You don't have to appreciate everyone's work. But they're, they're good people who have a serious passion. You're now seated on a picnic table in the Mulberry Junction Community Garden. Here's Lisa Erb. Well, I've been gardening here about 11 years. I think I came along after the garden had been running about four years. It's people, the early founders are a little fuzzy about the exact date, but we think the garden started about 1995. And it came from the germ of an idea of an artist who had a space in the California building. He was a carpenter who was interested in community farming. His name was Scott Horn. The lot where the community garden now sits used to be a building used by the U.S. Cereal Company. The building burnt down in the 1970s, and the property sat empty for many years, until Scott Horn approached John Kramer and Jennifer Young with his idea. Kramer and Young worked out a deal with the property's owner, and that was the beginning of the Mulberry Junction Community Garden. Okay, time to move on. There's a small path leading to the nearby sidewalk. Follow it and take a right on the sidewalk. As you're walking, you'll be able to get a good look at the empty grain silos behind the garden. One thing that's unique about Mulberry Junction and the rest of Northeast Minneapolis is the contrast between the industrial buildings and the parks and green spaces you find around them. Here's Lisa Erb again. There are a lot of people that probably don't appreciate those gritty industrial elements of Northeast, but I think it is a nod toward the history, what the city once was, and I love those things, the the big power poles and the former factories and the railroad, and, and some of those elements are still part of working aspects of the city. You know, the railroad is still delivering paper to the, to the printing plants down toward downtown, and, and um, so... I, I don't know. It's not for everybody. I like it though. <laughs> 
This song is by Miss Wishes and the Magic, a group of three past and present Northeast Minneapolis residents who got together to produce a song for the walking tour. The song will take you all the way to Lowry Street, where Kirsten will meet up with you. One last time, take a left across California. Do not cross Lowry. You can see the end of your walk from here. You should also be coming up to a green building on your left with a coffin on the door. Miss Kitty and Laura Lou will tell you about Live Fast, Die Young, a place where people collect art and incorporate life changes into their very skin. Can you guess what the sound is? People get tattoos. I don't know a lot of people. Different reasons. Some people just get it for the point to have a tattoo because it's in. But a lot of people do it on a memorial reason, try to attribute someone, and um, I don't know, immortality kind of thing. I don't know. Just remember points and times in their life. Try to map through. I mean, I have some some tattoos. Everyone asks me, do you regret any tattoos? And there's a couple that I maybe wouldn't have gotten going back and thinking about it, but I don't regret any of them because it's like, oh. I was thinking this time at that point to get that tattoo, so for different reasons. So a lot of people ask me where I go, and it's just like, well, which which art or which piece do you like? Because I I started off I started off actually going to one guy. He's done like probably my first six tattoos, and I was gonna stick with him because I was so happy. But once I started actually getting into tattooing and getting into the artwork about it, I wanted to kind of collect it and use my body as like a collecting canvas of people's art and stuff. And so even though I work here and every single artist is phenomenal and I have pieces from all of them, there's still certain artists around the whole world that I want to get tattooed by and just to kind of collect their style and their piece of artwork and it's very cool. So something that won't get lost, <laughs> hopefully. Why are you getting a tattoo? Um, because I'm 50 and um, I'm living my life, I guess. <laughs> I'm an artist, so. Okay. I, I wanted to, um, well, I love nature, so I'm getting a leaf, like a flowing leaf. And my daughter's here to support me. Has she been crying? No. She's been great. Does it hurt? It, the outline hurts the most. Okay. Otherwise, I've gotten used to it. It's not that bad. 
Why are you putting blue stuff on? Um, that is the shadow. That's oh. the ink that you're seeing. <laughs> The blue or the goo are you asking about? The, yeah, the blue goo stuff. Oh, the goo, I think it just looks blue because it's on my blue glove, oh, okay. but it's actually clear. Just, uh, and your ointment kind of moisturizes the skin and lubricates it as I go along, so the needle doesn't do as much damage as it would on dry skin. It'd be a little bit more abrasive. Like anything, it's better with lubrication. With that, I'll say goodbye, and maybe I'll see you around the neighborhood. There are different reasons for change. There are changes we initiate and changes we are prepared for, but sometimes circumstances are beyond our immediate control. Ahead of you might be a bridge, the new Lowry Bridge, estimated to be completed in 2011. In 2007, the original bridge was repaired and thought safe for traffic. But after the 35W bridge collapsed in August of 2007, there was a nationwide campaign to check bridges for safety standards, and the Lowry Bridge was discovered to have moved off its foundation by 11 inches. The old Lowry Bridge was loved and not so loved. We call it the singing bridge, because when you drive over it, it always made this funny noise. When I drive across the Lowry Bridge, it feels like my car is not connecting with the road. No matter how you felt about it, it had to go. And on Father's Day, June 22, 2009, the bridge was imploded. <laughs> Neighbors grouped together to watch this beautiful bridge be brought down. As of now, August 2009, Nothing has really changed, just a wide gap where a bridge used to connect northeast Minneapolis to its north Minneapolis neighbors. Now, back to that little bar to the right. Tony Jaros, River Garden. Dan Jaros knows about unexpected circumstances and the changes they bring. Jennifer Arvey interviewed Dan at the River Garden in July of 2009. Family's been here since 1960. I've been here, working here since probably 1969. I bought it in uh, 84. And who invented the greenie? My brother, Tommy. Me and him bought the bar and then he passed away in 88. So. He's just messing around one time and he used to bring it to softball games with him and make them out of his trunk. And we started selling them here probably in 1970. They just took off. Isn't there a sign that says home of the greenie? Yeah, right out here. I, after my brother died, I had that uh, painted. So that's kind of his sign, I guess. For him? Yeah. Was it the city that approached you to sell your building? or County. Okay. Yeah, they kind of asked me if I want to be here or not be here. And I kind of want to be here. So It's going to be a four-lane bridge now, and it's going to have a walking path and a bike path on it. My sidewalk's going to gain about 10 feet of sidewalk and it's going up four inches so it's going to go right to the door. Are you going to put people out there? I'm not sure yet. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I guess I'll believe it when I see it. So When, when it, everything happens then I'm not going to make any plans until it happens because things can change. So. 
always. You are the eyewitness of change, and you can see the present. How different does it appear after looking through its past and peeking into its future? It's time for us to go. Please enjoy the sounds of Pusa, another Northeast band. I'll leave you here at the corner of Lowry and Marshall, across from the home of the Greenie. Thank you for participating in the Northeast Neighborhood. Please visit our website for complete and additional interviews and a list of resources, newalkingtours.com. This audio-guided walking tour is made possible by a grant from the Center for Regional and Urban Affairs and a donation from the Northeast Community Lutheran Church. This project was the result of the partnership of ArtShare, Holland Neighborhood Improvement Association, and the Emma B. Howe YMCA. We would like to thank the participation and generous volunteer spirit of many Northeast neighbors. Sharon Morse, Jackie Fuller, Rich Fenton, Philip Harder, Isabel Harder, Otto Harder, Randy Corey, Aldo Moroni, Jennifer Young, John Kramer, Walt Dietzik, Ruth Ann Dick, Terry Andrew, B. Ann Oliver, Dan Jarris, Michael Fahey, Witsia Soko, John Greider, Shwaib Ibrahim, Doug Padilla, Patrick Risberg, Khalid Khan, Richard Reynolds, Carol Nagan, Patrick Riley, Tyler Erickson, Florence Hill, Miss Kitty, and Laura Liu. And music from Miss Wishes, Dan Haig, Chris Corbett, and Eva Kuhn, Jonathan Olson and John Knowles, Baby Grant Johnson, Stuart Devon of Savage Oral Hotbed plays his new creation, No. The Harders, Philip Harder, Isabel Harder, Otto Harder. Twin Cities Sounds and Pusa, Rob Steelcheat, Melissa Sonnen, Paul McFarland, and Jason Deming. And special thanks to Mitch Hanley for audio engineering.